scripture reading this morning is found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. So if you would take either your device or a Bible and turn to that, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Thanks, Bill. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see and to understand and to be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us have somewhere in our kitchen cabinets a junk drawer. You know the drawer where you have some spare batteries, a flashlight, um, maybe a calculator, some pens and paper, roll of masking tape, deck of cards, pair of pliers, you get the picture. Well, on my farm, I have a storage building. We refer to it as the machine shed because when it was originally built about 100 years ago, it was a building to store farm machinery in. But over the years, it has become a place to store stuff in. I keep my collection of scrap steel in there. Around a farm, occasionally you need some angle iron or flat bar or a piece of pipe to make repairs or alterations to a piece of farm equipment. I also have um, pails of motor oil in there and transmission oil and gear oil and plenty of empty pails as well. I have plumbing supplies, and electric fence supplies, and used tarps from covering haystacks with. I have ropes, and chains, and shovels, and spare parts, and spare tires for farm equipment, and partial bundles of shingles. Up in the rafters, I have lengths of pipe and some leftover pieces of lumber. The building is literally full of odds and ends. Think junk drawer times a thousand, okay? Basically, anything that I'm not sure whether I should keep it or chuck it ends up in that building. And this has been going on for decades. There are things in there that my father and my grandfather put in there before I was born. It's got to the point where you can hardly walk through there without tripping over something. And to top it off, the building itself has fallen into a state of disrepair. It's kind of leaning over like it wants to fall. But before I can deal with the structural issues, I need to deal with the mess inside. Our spiritual lives can look a lot like that storage building. Unconfessed sin in our lives can accumulate and clutter and impede our walk with the Lord. 
The writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, the writer to the Hebrews is not talking about actually running a race. He's comparing living our lives with running a race. And he tells us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Imagine for a moment that you are actually running a race. And that race takes place on my farm. So you have to run across fields and through ravines and over fences. And part of the race requires you to run through that storage building that I just told you about from one end to the other, as fast as you can. I can guarantee you, you're not going to get through there very quickly. You're going to be tripping over stuff, and you're going to be pushing stuff out of your way. It's not going to go very well. That's the way it is with sin in your life that's left unattended. It starts to trip you up. It gets in the way. It weighs you down. You need to set it aside and then run the run the race. You can't run the race with rope tangled around your feet. Lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Stop trying to run the race with unconfessed sin in your life. Stop trying to be a good Christian. Stop trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus with unconfessed sin in your life. You just can't do it. Sin has to be addressed. Deal with God honestly and then run the race. Most of us know that confession of sin is an essential part of salvation. We admit that we are sinners and in need of a Savior. But confession doesn't end there. Confession of sin is also an essential part of our day-to-day walk with God. It's an essential part of maintaining our fellowship with God and with others. And yet I see in my own life, and I suspect in many others also, confession of sin is often overlooked. The spiritual discipline of confession of sin is absolutely essential for us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to live our lives in obedience to the Lord, and to have him work through us. So as we work through the text this morning, there are three words that we can use to summarize what is being taught here. Number one, deception. Number two, confession. And number three, compassion. Deception, confession, compassion. So first of all, deception. Verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, and I were to say, everyone who has no sin, raise their hand. I doubt that many, if any of us, would raise our hand. Most of us recognize that we have sinned. And so it would be easy to read this verse and think, That doesn't apply to me. I would never say that I have no sin and keep on reading. But the way we deceive ourselves is by telling ourselves that our current condition is normal. 
that our sin is no worse than other people's. We admit that we sin, yes, but so does everyone else. And our sin is no worse than theirs. And there's plenty of people whose sin is worse than ours. And so we deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is acceptable. It's really no big deal. There's really nothing to confess. John tells us in this passage that thinking like that is self-deception. Self-deception is when we lie to ourselves and we believe it. We tell ourselves that our sin is acceptable and we believe it. Part of the reason we think this way is because we are influenced by the culture around us. The entire concept of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture. D.A. Carson once commented that the most frustrating thing about doing evangelism with university students is that generally they have no idea of sin. He said, they know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea of what constitutes sin. And when our culture does think about sin, it does so in positive terms. Las Vegas prides itself in being referred to as Sin City. Movies and television programs will sometimes use the word sin in the title to attract more viewers. We live in the midst of a world that is profoundly corrupt and almost totally unaware of the depth of that corruption. Unfortunately, some churches are not much better. In an effort to make the church more appealing to the world around it, many churches have done away with the idea of sin altogether, or at least softened it to accommodate modern ways of thinking. Strong biblical words for sin have been excluded from their vocabulary. People no longer commit adultery, they have an affair. Corporate executives don't steal, they commit fraud. And even in many conservative evangelical churches, although the idea of sin has not disappeared, it has been deflected to those outside our circles. When sin is talked about, it is describing those outside of the church, those in the culture around us who need to repent of their sins. It's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while ignoring our own acceptable sins. Our gossip or unkind words about a brother or sister in the Lord roll off our tongues without any sense of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. We look down our noses at sinners in society without any sense of a humble spirit saying, there but for the grace of God go I. We tend to overlook our gossip, our lust, our pride, our critical attitudes, our unkind words, our impatience and anger. It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying that these sins aren't as serious as the flagrant ones of society. Yet as James says in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point has become guilty of all. Galatians 3.10 quotes the Old Testament and says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Even our so-called acceptable sins, which we too often tolerate, are serious in the sight of God. 
The idea of sin may have disappeared from our culture. And for many believers, the awareness of, sin, of personal sin has disappeared from their consciences. But it has not disappeared from the sight of God. Every sin deserves the curse of God. I realize I'm pa painting a bleak picture here, and I assure you that there is good news to come. But the point that I'm trying to make now is that too often we overlook sin in our own life, and we don't even recognize it as being sin. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges compares sin with cancer. He tells of his wife being diagnosed with cancer. It spread throughout her whole body, and within a year and a half, she was dead. I'll read a paragraph from his book. Sin is a spiritual and moral malignancy. Left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives. Even worse, it often will metastasize from us into the lives of other believers around us. None of us lives on a spiritual or social island. Our attitudes, words, and actions, and oftentimes even our private unspoken thoughts, tend to have an effect on those around us. Sin is more than wrong actions, unkind words, and evil thoughts. Sin is a principle or moral force in our heart. The, the Apostle Paul calls it the flesh, or in some translations, our sinful nature. And even though as believers our hearts have been renewed, even though we have been freed from the absolute dominion of sin, even though we have the Holy Spirit living in our lives, this sinful nature still lurks within us and wages war against our souls. It is the failure to recognize this reality that provides the fertile soil for our acceptable sins to grow. Jerry Bridges goes on to say that the word deceitful, which is a moral term, can be used to describe the way cancer seems to operate. Just when you think you've successfully treated it, it can unexpectedly reappear somewhere else in your body. Our acceptable sins, or actually it's Satan, deceive us into thinking that they are not so bad, or not thinking of them as sin, or worse yet, not thinking of them at all. Back to our first John passage. John tells us that when we think this way about our sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Self-deception is when we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves that our sin is acceptable and we believe it. Notice that verse 10 is similar to verse 8. Verse 8 says, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John seems to be taking it a step further by saying that if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, because God has clearly said that we have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So John takes it from a matter of self-deception to a matter of not believing God, a far more serious matter. Let's move on to our second word, confession. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
What is confession? The Greek word used here that has been translated confess is homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak. So homo legeo means to speak the same or to concur. We are to say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. It is sin. Don't call it something else. If God says it's a lie, don't call it shading the truth. If God calls it theft, don't call it shrewd business practice. If God calls it adultery, don't call it inappropriate relationship. Call a sin a sin. I'd like to suggest a few guidelines for confession of sin. First of all, do it now, not next Saturday. If you don't take action and confess your sin immediately, it will get put aside. Pretty soon there will be clutter everywhere and you will be tripping over it. If you're trying to run the race while dealing with stuff from a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, you will fail. Confess your sin immediately. There is never a legitimate reason not to do it now. Number two, it's not hard to do. It's not rocket science. It's not hard to say to God, what I just said to my wife was unkind. Please forgive me. Then go to your wife and apologize. It's not difficult. Lord, the way I disciplined my kids was ungodly. Please forgive me. It's not difficult. Ask forgiveness of God and of your kids. Number three, you don't have to deal with the sins you don't remember. Just confess the ones that you do remember. But you'll find the more that you confess the sins that you do remember, the more your memory improves. Number four, be honest with God. There can be no attempts at cover-ups, no putting your own spin on what happened or why. Honesty with God is essential to, to all true confession. God already knows your sin anyways. You're not going to surprise him when you tell him what you've done. He knows all your motives inside and out. He knows what you've done and why you did it. And he's told you what to do about it. Acknowledge your sin. Confess it. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Whoever conceals his transgressions is not dealing with them. He's hiding them, hoping that no one will see, hoping that no one will find out what he's done. Such a person will not prosper. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is often our default mode. We're really good at concealing our sin. And we have a wide variety of ways that we do that. We justify what we did. We tell ourselves that it really was the right thing to do. Well, if it was really the right thing to do, you wouldn't be muttering to yourself that it was the right thing to do. That only happens when it was the wrong thing to do. We excuse what we did. It was wrong, yes, but it all happened so fast and besides, she started it. I was provoked. I was unprepared. 
We hide what we did. No one knows what I did, and I'm going to keep it that way. We confess what we did in vague terms. Lord, please forgive me for anything that I might have done today. We rename what we did. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Well, if God calls it a sin and you call it a mistake, that's not confessing. We pass the buck. It wasn't really my fault. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. These are the types of things that we do when we're trying to avoid simple, straightforward honesty with God. When we're trying to conceal our transgressions. And Proverbs 28.13 warns us that when we behave this way, we will not prosper. We'll be trying to run the race with rope tangled around our feet. Your walk with the Lord will go about as well as trying to run through that storage building. It's not going to go well. Now, it's possible that when you begin to think about your sin and to be honest with yourself and your sin and how you deal with it, you'll begin to feel overwhelmed. You see yourself sinning repeatedly and not dealing with it, and now you've got this big mess, and now you're feeling overwhelmed. You may even feel that you've messed things up so badly that there's really no hope of ever getting out of this mess. Well, take heart, there's good news. The second half of Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who confesses and forsakes his transgression will find compassion. That's our third word, compassion. First we had deception, then confession, now compassion. Let's go back to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First, God is faithful. He has promised to forgive sin. Exodus 34 verse 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, The Lord's loving kindness is indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful. And he is just. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin that we deserve to pay. And according to Romans 6.23, that penalty is death. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes on our sin. We take on his righteousness. It's not that God mercifully forgives us and overlooks his justice. If he did that, he wouldn't be just. He doesn't forgive us because he wants to be lenient with us. He forgives us because his justice has been satisfied. Jesus has paid the price in full. 
on our behalf. So God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. And the remedy for our sins, whether scandalous or acceptable, is the gospel. First, the gospel frees us up to face our sins. Facing our sin causes us to feel guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty. And if I believe either consciously or unconsciously that God still counts my guilt against me, I will instinctively seek to hide my sin, or at least to minimize it. In order for us to make a wholehearted admission of our sin, we need to know that it's been forgiven, that God no longer holds it against us. Romans 4 verses 7 and 8 said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Why does he not count my sins against me? Because he has already charged them to Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To the extent that we grasp this great truth of God's forgiveness of our sin through Christ, we will be freed up to honestly face the sin in our lives. The gospel also motivates and energizes me to deal with my sin. We need, we need to deal with it. It's not enough just to honestly admit it. We need to deal with it. Romans 8 uses the term putting it to death. The assurance that God no longer counts my sin against me does two things. First, it assures me that God is for me, not against me. It's not that God is up in heaven looking at you and thinking to himself, when are you ever going to get your act together? He comes alongside you and enables you to deal with it. Not as your judge, but as your loving Heavenly Father. And secondly, the assurance that God no longer counts your sin against you and is for you produces in you a strong sense of gratitude for what he has done and is doing in you through Christ. This encouragement and gratitude produce in us a desire to deal with our sin. Make no mistake, dealing with our sin is no option. We are commanded to put sin to death. But duty without desire soon produces drudgery. And it is the truth of the gospel reaffirmed in our hearts daily that puts desire in our duty. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Now, having desire in our duty is good, but it's not enough. There is a kind of spiritual warfare going on in our hearts. Paul describes it in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. We experience this struggle every day. And we can get discouraged and wonder if we will ever see progress in putting to death, sin in our life. Paul's answer is in the previous verse, Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. To walk by the Spirit is to live under His controlling influence and in dependence on Him. 
We do this by continually exposing our minds to his will for us as revealed in scripture and seeking to be obedient to him. We live in dependence on him through prayer as we ask him for his power to enable us to be obedient. There is a fundamental uh, principle of the Christian life known as dependent responsibility. We are responsible before God to obey his word and put to death the sin in our life. And yet we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to carry out that responsibility. We are in fact totally dependent on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. We are both responsible and dependent. As we seek to walk by the Spirit, we will over time see the Spirit working in us to cleanse us of remaining sin in our lives. We will never reach perfection in this life, but we will see progress. It will be incremental progress, to be sure, and there will be times when it will seem that it is no progress at all. But we can be sure that if we sincerely want to address the sin in our lives, the Holy Spirit will be at work in us to help us. And we have his promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6. God will not abandon the work that he has begun in you. So by way of application in closing, I'd like to give you some practical directions on how to deal with sin. This is really where the rubber meets the road. How, how do I deal with my sin? I have seven directions that I'd like to share. First of all, apply the gospel. We need always to address our sin in the context of the gospel. We need to keep in mind this twofold truth, which is true for all who are trusting in Jesus for their, as their Savior. Our sins are forgiven, and we are accepted as righteous before God because of both the sinless life and the sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater motivation for dealing with our sin than these two glorious truths of the gospel. Number two, we must rely on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is by the Spirit that we put to death sin in our life. Our tendency is to forget that and try to rely on our own willpower. We need to cultivate an attitude of continual dependence on the Holy Spirit. Number three, we must recognize our responsibility. Even while depending on the Holy Spirit, remember that we are responsible to take all practical steps to deal with our sin. Remember, I talked about dependent responsibility. Work as if it all depends on you, and yet trust as though you didn't work at all. Number four, identify specific areas of sin in your life. Do you struggle with discontentment or anxiety, frustration, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, resentment, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue such as gossip, slander, and critical speech, worldliness. 
Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see if there is a pattern of that sin in your life. Give some thought to what situations trigger that reaction. Anticipating the circumstances that stimulate the sin can be helpful in putting it to death. Number five, we should bring applicable scriptures to bear upon each of the sins we struggle with. These scriptures should be memorized, reflected on, and prayed over as we ask God to use them to enable us to deal with our sin. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. To store up means to lay aside for future need. When we have memorized scripture and prayed over those scriptures that address our sins, the Holy Spirit will bring them to mind to remind us of the will of God, to warn us, and to guide us in our response to temptation. Number six, cultivate the practice of prayer. It is through prayer that we consciously acknowledge our need of the Holy Spirit. We should pray in a planned, consistent manner in our daily private time with God and in short, spontaneous prayers for the help of the Holy Spirit when we encounter situations that might trigger one of our sins. Number seven, we should involve one or more other believers in our struggle against sin. We should have what we sometimes call an accountability partner, someone we meet with regularly to pray with and encourage each other I found this very helpful in my own life, in my struggle against sin. So how do we put to death sin in our life? Not simply by willfully trying not to sin, but by committing ourselves to becoming more godly. We need an increased affection for God that will expel from our hearts worldly affection that leads us to sin such as pride and selfishness, etc., the way we grow in our affection for God is to grow in our awareness of Christ's love for us as revealed in the gospel. And as we grow in our love for God, we will have a growing distaste for sin. And it will not so easily entangle us. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, that is our desire this morning that we would have an increased affection for you. We pray that you would show us our sin in our life, sin that we so often overlook and ignore and sometimes don't even recognize it as being sin. May we confess it and turn from it. Thank you, Father, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.